Hello everyone, Dr. Chris Martinson of Peak Prosperity here with you again. Today we're gonna to be talking about blood clots. Now, a lot of you have been asking me about these. We received a lot of questions. We just did an update webinar for our inside and VIP subscribers and this question came up a lot. So I thought, hey, let's address this publicly so that we can at least agree on maybe a couple of things and we can have some common shared territory about what is actually happening are the blood clots a real thing? Are they happening more than we would expect? And what might be causing them? I'm sure you've seen the news, so let's dive in and go there. So I wanna talk about this in relation to the COVID spike protein. There's some great data around this right now. That's a little picture down there of a blood clot. And here it is in a larger view. And what you're seeing are red blood cells inside of a blood vessel, and that's a clot, all tangled up with that white stuff, which are, which is fibrinogen that got cleaved and turned into fibrin. It's a structural protein. It's very sticky. It grabs all the red blood cells and platelets and whatever else is going on. And it forms a ball because guess what? Your body has a very strong, compelling interest to make sure that your fluids stay inside the body and don't go outside the body. But controlling that turns out to be wicked difficult. I mean, imagine, you know, sure, if you get a cut and your skin is exposed to air. And so there's uh, some sort of, you know, too much oxygen in there. You're Cells can detect that and your whole cap clotting cascade can detect that. But what if you just got bruised, like that softball barrels into your thigh? You have a bruise down there, you have broken blood vessels, they had to clot in order to heal. How did they do that without being exposed to air? Again, there are signals, very complicated signals. So this is a delicate process that can go awry and we have a lot of evidence that it's gone awry in the past couple of years. So I wanna talk about that process. What do we know, what do we not know? What can we know for sure? First up, this is a really, it's a very good reference article about blood clots. What do they look like and feel like? I would highly recommend that everybody be familiar with this because <clears throat> blood clots actually cause a lot of death and misery pre-COVID and they'll continue to do the same post-COVID. So knowing the warning signs about when you have a thrombosis or a clot or an occlusion or whatever, you know, maybe a stroke signs or anything like that, you wanna know the signs. So I would highly recommend reading this article. Now, before we go there, let's share some terminology. An embolism. An embolism is something that is dislodged and wandering through your, your arterial venous system. So you got a bunch of pipes in you, arteries and veins. If you have something wandering around in there, we would call it an embolus. It could be anything. It could be a blood clot, which we just talked about. It could be air from an injection. You've heard about that, right? You don't wanna just plunge the needle into a vein you have to draw back and make sure <clears throat> that you're in a vein, but you also make sure, remember the thing they do with the needle first and pushing the air out? That's because if you inject air into a vein or an artery, it could create an air embolus, an airlock that prevents, operates just like a blood clot. So that could be that, or it could be fat. In this case, we're seeing a radiograph of a broken bone. Sometimes if a broken bone, which is full of marrow, which is a very fatty substance, has a lot of arteries around it. If that breaks, it's possible for fat to get into the system and of piping. Or it could be something like this. It could be that you have atherosclerotic disease, the hardening of the arteries. This is a plaque buildup you see in the picture on the left. That's an actual picture on the right. So they do look like that. And that fatty yellow stuff is cholesterol and lipids and things like that. So these things build up. And then it's possible for a little chunk of that to break off and go walk about. And then it becomes an embolus, right? Uh, this is an example of something that might happen if you had a big old deep venous thrombosis down there somewhere in your lower body <clears throat> and a big old chunk of something, a clot, a thrombus, a, a, a blood clot 
that it formed breaks off and starts going walkabout, becomes that embolus, it comes up into your heart and then gets ejected out of the heart towards the lungs. And in that case, I've circled here the saddle between where your primary um, arteries towards the lungs break off and go in two directions, one to the left lung, one to the right lung. Now, fun fact, uh, my degrees in pathology from Duke University, we did autopsies. My very first autopsy was in a gentleman who had a saddle embolus, a big old clot right there at that juncture. As soon as we find that, we have the cause of death. So that was immediate cause of death was saddle embolus. His lungs are no longer getting perfused with oxygen. It's a very, very rapid death from there. So that was the primary finding. But then we dug a little further, and it turned out this gentleman also had an undiagnosed case of cancer. It was all shot through his liver. And um, cancer is a known risk factor for helping to create clots. So we would maybe what we listed in that case was the saddle embolus is primary, but contributing factor here is the cancer that he had. And he was in the hospital for other reasons, not feeling well. But that was uh, something very close to me because that was my, the very first time I'd ever conducted an autopsy. <clears throat> I'm familiar with this whole process. So in the scheme of being able to talk about these things out in public and uh, do I have the qualified expertise to talk about things like pathological findings and uh, things like clots? Yes, I do. Uh, my degree and my background and my training would all allow me to have enough expertise to be allowed, I would hope, in a free society to discuss things like this with you. All right. So <clears throat> an embolism, here's the thing we need to know about an embolism. It will travel until it eventually can't. So this is a representation of an arterial tree starting from a major trunk, branching, rebranching, finally out in capillary. So no matter where a chunk of something breaks off, if that chunk is larger than the diameter of a red blood cell, it's eventually gonna get caught somewhere. A major embolus will get caught in a major branch or a saddle or branching and a microembolus at a smaller, smaller juncture and something that's really small might get caught all the way out in the capillary beds out there somewhere. But the chunk breaks off and goes on walkabout until it runs into a place where it gets stuck in the piping somewhere. So this is probably very, very germane to what we're seeing going on in COVID, long COVID, things like that as well, maybe some other conditions, which um, I'll leave you to infer. <clears throat> so that's an embolism, thrombosis then. Now this is a blood clot, typically forms locally somewhere it blocks either a blood vessel, a vein, or an artery. It could be formed in a vein, could be formed in an artery, could be formed in a vein that then flows to an artery, becomes an embolus, and then flows over there, or it could, be, it could even form in a capillary itself. So it all depends where it forms, but a thrombosis is typically a blood clot. An embolism is anything that's foreign, that's traveling in your bloodstream, that's an occlusive object that finally will stick somewhere and cause that to all stop. So that's the basic terminology. So we can um, just have some shared understanding then. And this is continuing from that same Healthline article, which I said is very good. Quote, blood clots are a serious issue as they can be life-threatening. They are also called thrombosis. This condition occurs when clots form in the vessels that contain blood, preventing it from flowing effectively. Blood clots can form in the veins or arteries when a blood clot occurs in one of your veins. It's called venous thrombo embolism. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, an estimated 900,000 people in the U.S. are affected by blood clots each year. An estimated 60 to 100,000 people die from this condition annually. Males are at a higher risk of getting both first-time and recurring blood clots than females. You're even slightly concerned that you have a clot. 
that's a medical intervention right away. So um, <clears throat> there's lots of ways you could sort of detect that you have these things. These are examples of what it looks like if you have a thrombosis that's near the surface. It's it, these, they're red, they're sore. It's got this swelling that won't go away when you elevate or ice the leg. It's because here we've got a, a venous occlusion and the blood is trying to return back to the heart, but it can't. So it kind of piles up, creates all that swelling. And so the blockage would be just upstream from that, not, not down at the feet, that's downstream, but just upstream towards the body. That's where you'd expect that to be. So that's what it kind of looks like there. And that's, that's what a clot looks like. So pulmonary embolism versus a heart attack, very different things. Chest pain is, is a sign maybe something is wrong. And I'm covering this because this has been something that has been afflicting a lot of people of late, particularly younger people. This, you should know these warning signs, right? Again, I'm not, a, I'm not your doctor. I'm not any medical doctor. I'm not here to give medical advice. You should know these warning signs. Everybody should. It's just part of being, part of being an adult. Chest pain is a sign, obviously something's wrong, but figuring out if it's a heart attack or a PE or just indigestion can be difficult. According to Maldonado, the chest pain that comes with a pulmonary embolism may feel like sharp pains that get worse with each breath. The pain may also be accompanied by sudden shortness of breath, that rapid heart rate, possibly a cough. So if you get those three things, you might have a pulmonary embolism hie thee to the hospital, get there right away. A pain in your chest that feels more like an elephant is sitting on you may be a sign of a potential cardiac event, such as a heart attack or angina or pericarditis or myocarditis. Those again, very serious warning signs that you wanna be alert to. The pain that goes along with a potential heart attack may center on your chest. It may also radiate out the left part of your jaw or your arm. And if you're sweaty, or have what feels like indigestion along with chest pain, that's more cause of concern for a heart attack. Okay, so I'm mentioning all this because this has come up a lot for a lot of people. So I think it's important to just cover what these warning signs are, whether you're having them or you see somebody looks like they're experiencing them, you could ask them, hey, shortness of breath, where's the pain, what's it feel like? Uh, but nonetheless, anything anything in that, in that area is really a cause for alarm and you need to get somebody in for medical treatment right away. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> so, uh, I think that one's slightly out of order. I'm going to do this first. So the first thing we want to talk about here today then is, um, is this idea of blood clots that happen and they can either happen anti-mortem, anti-before, pre, pre-mortem, before death, or anti-mortem or post-mortem after death. And by the way, I took this from a very, very, very old textbook to show you that the ability to distinguish between antemortem and postmortem clots ain't exactly new science. Uh, we've known about this for a very long time. So the antemortem, the pre-deceased, the, the, the thrombi that may have formed over a long period of time, they're dry and granular, they're firm, they adhere to the vessel walls, the surfaces contain something called lines of zon, which we'll cover in just a second. They may or may not take their vascular contours, meaning they're not like a cast that was poured down into a sand mold of something, you know, it's like down that artery or the vein. They may or may not take that shape, whereas a postmortem clot, they're gelatinous, they're soft, they're rubbery, they're weakly attached to the vessel walls. The surface is chicken fat yellow, covering an underlying red currant jelly is the language that's been used for a long time. And they tend to take the shape of the vessel and or its bifurcation if they're in the saddle. <clears throat> so again, this is just something we've known for a very, very long time. 
as well, there's a third class we have to talk about here, which is called agonal clots. <clears throat> they say here, quote, clots and thrombi identified at autopsy are generally classified dichotomously, only two ways as antemortem or postmortem. <clears throat> All right, so current articles and textbooks, uh, you know, they support that approach, but they, what they did here, they collected 238 autopsy cases, including 80 rapid or sudden deaths. And this is from back in 2015, I believe. So this has nothing to do with COVID. It's just clotting. 80 rapid or sudden deaths by violence and 21, including one pediatric death from acute pulmonary emboli. And they analyzed the gross and microscopic features of clots and thrombi. And they found this agonal thrombi, which is something that's forming over time as somebody is dying slowly, the agonal breaths, right? <clears throat> That's a long process of dying rather than somebody who died acutely or something like that. The agonal thrombi were identified in 122 cases. That is 89% of cases of slow death. Agonal thrombi were not identified in cases of sudden death. This comes important later. So they found that a comprehensive description of the macroscopic features was a key to interpretation. The gross and microscopic features of agonal chicken thrombi, chicken fat, support their hybrid nature. So <clears throat> again, the agonal death, which is kind of a third class, like did these people, you know, did the clot form pre-mortem or post-mortem, anti-mortem or post-mortem? There's that third class where they kind of formed over the process of dying, which might've been over hours, days, weeks as somebody's going through that agonal slow death process. Um, but still they said the agonal thrombi, they had, they had that uh, chicken fat sort of view to them, okay? So what are we talking about here? This is a chicken fat clot over here, clearly circled. And this is the current jelly clot here. You can see the, the color of those. You can see how they're taking the shape of the arteries here. You can sort of make out the outlines of what these things would have looked like. And you know what <clears throat> clearly see an embolus. Sorry, the clot forming around the branches of whatever structure it was in at that time. As well, they might look like this. Note the color. Note the consistency, note the sort of slumpy gelatinous nature of these things, chicken fat on the bottom, a little more um, current jelly on the top. And the reason for that is that when you die, your heart stops pumping. So now whatever blood is sitting in whatever volume, say in your aorta or in your you know, vena cava or in any artery or any vein, it's just sitting there and now it begins to clot. So it's just basically, you know, your blood flow freezes as it were, it stops flowing. And then that volume of blood that's sitting there in your vein or your artery, it just sort of begins to gel, right? So you could imagine like if you had a big cut and it came out all over the counter in the kitchen, over time, it would just sort of clot in place, right? It, the color you would expect for that to be is very, very dark red, sort of that red current jelly sort of approach. Now, what happens when it's inside your body, we see here, you get this chicken fat stuff because you have a lot of um, lipids floating around, you got in your plasma, not the red blood cell component, tends to lift and float and it forms a, a layer. And so we, this is what we see. So these are very, very typical post-mortem clots. This is what you see just because somebody has died and whatever blood they had in there is now congealing and forming into post-mortem clots. Um, post-mortem clots also are friable, meaning that they, they don't have a lot of consistency to them. If you pull on them, they tend to break. Um, if you, you have to lift them very, very gently, if you want them to take this sort of a shape, they, they will come apart really easily. 
uh, in this case, you can see like that break up top. It was probably somebody tugged just a little bit. You really have to handle them very, very gently. Um, and then when you do take them out, they tend to slump. They don't have a lot of shape. They don't have a lot of firmness. So we call that friable, meaning <clears throat> easily broken. Now, in a pre-mortem clot, though, we see something very different. They're, they're a little bit tougher. They're a little bit more rigorous. But you see these things called lines of zon. So now we see, the, you see all those lines, you see that lighter colored line and then a darker and then a lighter and then a darker. So the darker lines here are the red blood cells, the RBCs. Those have been caught in one of those fibrin mesh networks. And then later there's, um, you imagine this building up like a geode geologically. There's a layering going on here where first you get a layer of red blood cells and then there's a big layer of platelets and fibrin which makes these lighter colored lines. And then a little later, it's like tree rings. You know, there's more red blood cells getting stuck to this thing, and then a little more fibrin and platelets and more red blood cells. So these are typical. This tells you this clot developed slowly over time. This is not a post-mortem clot. To, to be able to distinguish pre-mortem and post-mortem, very easy when you see this. You look at this, this isn't even on the graduate level exam in histology. It's like, what is this? What is this? It's a clot. Pre-mortem or post-mortem? That's pre-mortem. Very easy to tell. Um, so, so that's pretty settled science at this point. And again, you know, this is a high intensity electron micrograph of red blood cells, those little, you know, obvious red blood cells, little donuts there. And then you can see the fibrin, uh, which has been colorized to be green. That's the cross-linking fibers that mesh this whole thing together. And so if you saw that micrograph taken out at a view, would it be red or would it be white? And the answer is it'd be red because you'd have a lot of red blood cells. You'd get that red current jelly in there. This is a a typical, <clears throat> typical clot. So here's uh, more lines of zon. The vessel wall is down here, and this is a clot that's formed in here. Again, pre-mortem. Uh, so this, very easy to, to distinguish. So I'm just trying to set up here that pre-mortem and post-mortem clots, pretty easy to tell apart. Now, in a movie that came out recently, that a lot of you asked me to comment on, and um, you can see the name of it down there, and I'm being coy for a reason out here in public because uh, certain things got, got um, censored pretty heavily out, out in some spots. And uh, by the way, my, my view of that movie is some things I wouldn't have put in there and other things I thought were pretty strong. I want to talk about the strongest part of that right now, which is this. This is the embalming experience. So when this piece got pulled out, the quote from the gentleman, the embalmer who did it said, this came out in one elastic piece. It's not friable, like this thing has like rubber band. It's got elasticity. And by the way, if we look at this, it's got like this crazy, so this is fresh out, right? <clears throat> Just came out. I mean, look at this part. Let me get my drawing tool here, make this as clear as possible. Um, when we see these, you know, we can clearly see some red currant jelly there and there, and here's a little over here, but this part here, this isn't the chicken fat. The chicken fat is light colored like this, but it's, it's friable. It's, it's not rubbery. It's very soft and gelatinous. This is, this isn't it. Look at this too. This looks almost like connective tissue, that white part right there. Let me undo that. Whoops. So you can see that part more clearly. Um, all right. Um, so if you look at that, that that's that looks like it almost looks like um, you see the ribbony aspect of it. It almost looks like uh, a ligament, a tendon. I mean, it's it's almost it's, it looks like a structural protein. It's a very very bizarre looking thing. So <clears throat> again, that's an odd thing. Doesn't look anything like these postmortem clots. Not a thing like them. And now we're going to see. 
that it really doesn't behave like this. And if you're squeamish at all, you might want to come back later. We're going to see now turn now to a chunk from that movie uh, where we're, where this woman is going to show us what it's like when they remove one of these things. And you're going to be able to see just how tough this thing is. It's, it's very long. And um, I think there's a lot of information in just the structure of this thing as it as it comes out. To come out of the, you know, the juggler up here. It's just, it's incredible. That is not normal. You see a big old pile of them down there. And you see how there is some of that red currant jelly going on, but you can see as well, we've got a lot of that, um, that white stuff there. And do you see how long that was? There's not a chance in the world that's a classic post-mortem clot, not a chance in the world. And in fact, it gets really obvious when we turn to this gentleman, <clears throat> I'll let him explain what's going on again. It just speaks for I itself. was in Ohio last week or the week before last, and there were a hundred embalmers at the Ohio Embalmers Association in my lecture. And I, I, I posed these photos up where people could see them and nearly all of the embalmers out of a hundred in this room raised their hands that uh, they had seen uh, clots and white fibrin structures of, of, of that kind of size. And when I ask again, when did they start seeing them? Again, it's uh, that 16 to 18 month period. This is yeah, so for some reason in a 16 to 18 month period, these things are starting to show up. So first thing is, we're looking at people, a lot of embalmers came out and said, look, decades of experience, been doing this a long time, you know, done hundreds and hundreds of, of separate bodies, never saw these things, now we do. So obviously the first question is, well, what, what are we gonna do about that? Because that, that's data, it's just a, it's an observation. This is how all science begins. It begins with an observation. This observation is that these things are kind of different looking. Now, <clears throat> what's interesting though is that uh, there are people out there who are very much not interested in following science and don't like observations, and perhaps none more so than PolitiFact, who I've dunked on them before when I fact-check their fact-checkers, because they do the worst job fact-checking I've ever seen. I mean, the, the people they, they choose to uh, avail as fact-checkers for their fact-checking fact-checkers, it's just, it's really bad. So look at this. Um, here's uh, Madison writing about, Madison uh, Sopek writing about this movie, repeats, says it repeats debunked COVID-19 claims, promotes conspiracy theory. Oh, there it is. We just can stop talking about that now because it's been promoting conspiracy theory. Remember, if you try and use conspiracy theory as a means to shut down your opposition right away, that means you personally are the person who has a persuasive complex, meaning you're, you're, you have a non-persuasive capability, right? And if you are non-persuasive capability, it means, yeah, you're an NPC. So Madison, am I accusing you of being an NPC? I sure am. Let's check in on her credentials to see if she's uh, qualified to give that opinion. Let's see, she's a, previously a reporter at Wareham Week, a weekly newspaper in Wareham, Mass. Um, and she's got degrees in journalism and poli-sci. Um, if you have anything you want to say to truthometer, truthometer there at politifact.com, that's, I guess, where you would send things like that. So obviously she's gonna have to rely on other experts. Who did she turn to? She said here, first, Jessica Koth, who I will show you has been showing up in a lot of these things, speaking about this, because funeral directors have been talking about these things for a while now saying, well, what is this stuff? Jessica Koth has been trying to tamp down some flames around this uh, for a while, said here, 
A spokes, she's a spokesperson for the National Funeral Directors Association, said, although medical examiners, physicians, or scientists are qualified to conduct research and determine connections between COVID-19, vaccines, and blood clots found in, embo- in bodies, embalmers are not. Um, so that's a separate statement from saying, hey, are they noticing or do they have an observation that departs from something they are eminently qualified to talk about? It's just like if, if embalmers suddenly started noticing that there were titanium rods in people's arms where there never had been titanium rods before and we couldn't account for them, a pretty cool, interesting observation that we would want to follow up. So that wasn't a legit takedown right there from Jessica uh, saying, you know, these people are not qualified to make a statement about where they come from, but they are qualified to say these blood clots are qualitatively different than what they've seen before. And that should trigger some sort of curiosity, perhaps an investigation. Um, And then going on, quote, Ben Schmidt, a licensed funeral director and embalmer, (laughs) they go right to their expert who is an embalmer, um, who has written mortuary science textbooks, echoed Koth's point, we receive no medical training that allows us to identify unusual clots. You don't need medical training to identify something that's unlike anything you've seen before. That, 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 that you don't, that's not a, an argument either. Schmidt said, uh, something that looks unusual to one embalmer may be very, a very common sight to another. Again, this doesn't direct the data directly. This is sort of a deflection um, that's not a great quote right there. Maybe you got misquoted. Continuing on, the postmortem clots shown in the film weren't unusual, he added. After death, gravity pulls the moisture in the blood toward the ground, leaving behind proteins that can coagulate. Quote, this is common during refrigeration, he said, formaldehyde has a dehydrating and coagulating effect on blood as part of its cross-linking reaction. That can also account for what would appear as postmortem clots. <clears throat> this is grossly misinformed. These things are not postmortem clots. I mean, this is like basic elementary stuff. You now know more than Schmidt apparently does about pre and postmortem clots, antemortem and postmortem clots, because these things do not look like it. But I can prove it another way. So let's go there. Let's use some very simple math. So here's one of the shots that came out of that last uh, scene we saw in that video clip. And let's look at this. Let's look at this compared to this person. Let's imagine a centimeter of that thing. That big white long. First off, we'll notice it doesn't have any blood in it because it's not reddish color. This is almost a, it's a tannish white. And it clearly has a long nature like this. It doesn't follow the shape of the blood vessel, particularly. It's not round. It's a funky do shape, right? So let's imagine this came out of like the biggest artery you've got, like the biggest, widest thing. Okay, it's the aorta. So first up, we note that and we're going to be very conservative here. If this is made out of fibrin, which I'm pretty sure it is, fibrin, and it uh, looks like it's got something else in there, amyloid. We'll get to that in just a second. But let's imagine it's this fibrin stuff. We note here that fibrin clocks in at a max of about 4.5 grams per liter, per liter of blood. So let's imagine that somebody dies. Your aorta is this big old tube, and the, the whatever's, however much fibrin is in there is around, according to this expert the politifact found says he's like oh yeah no you put a little formaldehyde in there and the the natural proteins in there just cross-linked okay first they would be red they would look like red currant jelly even if you had formaldehyde turning that into something more solid it still wouldn't be white or pure white it would be a very it would be all of the volume of that blood cross-linked all at once so now you have to propose that somehow magically because of refrigeration and formaldehyde that the fibrin that is in the blood separated out 
the and that that's what we're seeing here. So how do we account for that? Let's use some basic math. 4.5 grams per liter is how much fibrin we might maximally have in a volume of blood. Second thing, we see here that the max diameter or normal thoracic aorta diameter, the biggest one, so let's imagine that little white stringy thing came out of the aorta. We had a max concentration of fibrinogen in there, 4.5 grams per liter, and it was a male and it was 36 millimeter diameter, you know, aorta. And so the question is, is there enough fibrin to make this? So just looking at that, imagining a centimeter, I'm just wildly guesstimating, but I'll say a centimeter of that looks like it weighs a gram. I bet it weighs a lot more, but I'll just go with a gram for now. So maybe that's, you know, within the ballpark of what's possible. All right, basic math says, okay, uh, if it has a radius then of um, 1.8 centimeters, uh, because that's R is the radius is half the diameter. Diameter was 3.6 centimeters. Um, let's see here. Uh, the volume would be about 10 cubic cc's per centimeter of, of aortic length at 4.5 grams per liter over here. Let me get my drawing tool back out here at 4.5 grams per liter. That gives us about mm, 0 0.0045 grams per cubic centimeter, which means that if we multiply that by 10, we have about mm, 0.04 grams or 45 milligrams of fibrin per centimeter for the aorta. Um, that's almost pure fibrin up there. It's got water weight. Let's pretend the water weight's 70%. So only 30% of that is just actual protein. And if we said that was about a gram, we'd need about 300 milligrams of fibrin that would somehow magically have to do that and that's impossible. Um, the numbers just don't even line up. There isn't enough fibrin in situ at moment of death to create that. It's not possible for this to be a postmortem clot. It's not possible for what this person here is saying. So I'm not sure why they say um, embalmers are not qualified to talk about anything and then found one to tell us something that frankly comes off as sounding pretty unqualified. Um, but it doesn't pass basic sniff test and uh, I would debate this person all day long on this. Uh, but it really is not a very qualified statement. But I expect no more from our PolitiFact fact checkers. Uh, they turn out to be rather bad at their jobs or rather good, depending on your point of view. So bottom line is this amount of fibrin is not even remotely close to what we're seeing there. This is a pre-mortem clot or formation. Now, the good news is we have a lot of data to tell us what this might be. Um, oh, by the way, uh, PolitiFact has been on this for quite a while, even before that movie came out here in February of 2022. They are already having to deal with these abnormal clots that are being seen. This is something that's been out there for a long time. They say here, no clear evidence that COVID vaccines are responsible for strange blood clots observed by embalmers. Um, I could also write there's no clear evidence that they're not because there's no evidence one way or the other. And the reason we don't have that evidence is another subject for another day. But this should be the kind of thing that should elicit immediate prompt inquiry, tens of millions of dollars of grants from the NIH, the CDC to figure out what is going on. And so far it's been dead silence, radio silence, chirping crickets. We don't even hear the crickets because those are being used in burgers now, I guess. I don't know. So right here, they write long before vaccinations were available, said licensed embalmer Monica Torres of NXT Generation Mortuary Support in Phoenix. And it is not uncommon to find dark blood clots in any deceased. I will not disagree with that. That's not what we're looking at here. And not just COVID persons who have been stored in refrigeration for a long period of time before embalming. Blah, blah, blah. They carry on. They say the article 
that they're responding to here gives the impression that the clots are linked to the COVID-19 vaccine, but there is no scientific evidence of such a link. We rate this claim mostly false. <laughs> it's like mostly dead. Um, what do you mean mostly false? So at any rate, uh, th this is... Um, uh, this is an example of a really bad fact check because it actually doesn't adhere to the facts we have and then finds people who are giving, frankly, weird sentence. It doesn't even, this is now works, right? If you have these long things that nobody has seen before, the very first question is, can we look at this under a microscope? Can we look at it under high magnification? Can we get electron microscope pictures of it? Can we get cross sections of this stuff after it's been embedded in paraffin with various staining? Can we just? Can you just tell me what this stuff is? Well, the good news is we actually know what this stuff is now. And so we've got pretty decent answers and a good hypothesis is coming along. Fact checkers, pay attention. This is what fact checking actually looks like here. So there is a solid hypothesis forming. And here's something that came out from um, Esiresius Pretorius. Uh, Paul Merrick directed me to this. And then Pierre Corey directed me to this amazing substack, which I'll show you in just a second. Uh, but this is something that was found in oddly languished. Look at that. 23rd of August, 2021, long time ago, way before the fact checkers tried to fact check this stuff, talking about, and this pertains to long COVID in particular, persistent clotting protein pathology in long COVID slash post-acute sequelae of COVID-19 is accompanied by increased levels of antiplasmin. So this was an interesting paper that came out and started to figure out what's going on. So to take us down there, um, this is a fantastic blog. Really, really, really good. You should read it. This is a Midwestern doctor.substack.com. So a Midwestern doctor here wrote back on November 25th, you know, what is causing these blood clots from that movie right there? And um, it turns out the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein is remarkably effective at disrupting many critical physiological processes, both in the short term and in the long term. And as you saw from my last episode where I was going through the emails reviewing what Fauci and his fellow co-conspirators knew and what they did to cover up this idea that came from a lab is really astonishing. Today, we have more evidence showing that this thing that suddenly emerged, this SARS-CoV-2 that suddenly came out of nowhere, right, had keys to get into not just one tissue in the human body, but to get into many, many different tissues. And we now can show you spike protein in brain slices. We know that it attacks the um, endothelial linings of the blood vessels. We know that it obviously attacks the lungs, gets in there. We now know that it gets into nervous tissue directly. We know that this stuff comes in through a lot of different key. It has, it's like it has six different keys to get in through six different doors in your house. And it's, that's very unusual. I mean, not just very unusual. I don't know anything else like it yet in the literature. So kind of unusual. So at any rate, Looking at this, um, here's what he wrote about that paper. He said, the long and the short of it was that this largely unknown August 21 paper, which I just showed you the title of, explains exactly why these fibrous clots are forming. In the study, a blood clotting simulation outside the body was created. Normal blood, blood from COVID-19 patients on the first day of symptoms before any treatment, and normal blood exposed to a low concentration of COVID-19 spike proteins were then exposed to a key clotting factor, thrombin, big long cascade, thrombin's a, a critical part of that early part of the clotting process. 
when those clots were observed in the study they found, normal blood behaved as you would expect. Normal blood with dilute, and this is very dilute, spike protein formed a denser fibrin clot. Next, small amounts of amyloid, which is an abnormal protein aggregations, were present in the fibrin clots formed. This is a big deal. We have fibrin plus this stuff called amyloid. This is not a good thing to be finding in there because the amyloid protein, <clears throat> it's been implicated in a lot of things, including Alzheimer's and, and other you know, pathologic processes, but amyloid is when a protein gets misfolded and there's a lot of amyloid proteins and your, your whole body's busy trying to figure out how to fold proteins the right way. And if they misfold, it's a bad deal. So when that goes awry, when the folding process goes awry, you have a bad situation. So for some reason, these spike proteins are actually triggering amyloid formation as well as triggering the fibrin part of the cascade, but doing it in a really odd way. It's not like a clot where they do it all at once. Platelets get caught up, red blood cells get caught up, and you have those big, long, very red, red currant jelly sort of looking clots. This is a different process. And the last bullet point, much more, a statistically significant increase in amyloid was present in the fibrin clots formed by normal blood mixed with dilute spike protein. Mm. So there's some really intriguing clues here. We're like, oh, the spike protein. The spike protein itself is doing something vis-a-vis -vis the clotting cascade. Now, this is really weird. Remember, SARS-CoV-2 is a respiratory virus. It's supposed to be, you know, travels through respiratory droplets. It goes, you know, and, and when a respiratory virus attacks you, it's going to attack you in your nasopharyngeal region because it likes to land there and maybe, you know, do a lot of its replicating. Or it's going into your lungs or both, but that's what a respiratory virus does. It's very unusual for a respiratory virus to decide it likes to do stuff in your blood and, and trigger clotting cascades and, and mess up your endothelial cells. So that, another story for another day, but to me, that's, it's yet more confirmation that there's something very much not right about this particular virus. All right, <clears throat> so the work continues and those same people, here we see uh, Escherichia Pretorius as the final author listed and Douglas Kell this time is in the first author position on this one, which is talking about a central role for amyloid fibrin microclots in long COVID origins and therapeutic implications. I did some nice work in this paper too, just jumping straight to the conclusions. I don't have time to go through the whole paper, but interesting stuff. And if you have long COVID or you suspect you're suffering from it, or you suspect you have a related condition from some other intervention that might've happened, this would be important work to understand and for your doctor to understand. Conclusions, quote, here we have argued and focused on the fact that long COVID is characterized by the presence of persistent fibrin amyloid microclots that might block capillaries and inhibit the transport of oxygen to tissues and trapping numerous inflammatory molecules, including those that prevent clot breakdown. So when clots form, remember I said the body's got a really tight you know, um, regulation on this process of clotting, both the formation and then the deformation, the breaking down of those clots, because you put them up for a while till things repair themselves, and then you break the clots back down so normal traffic can continue. That breakdown process gives you things like D-dimer, which is a com breakdown component of the fibrin. Plasmin comes in and breaks it up, and you get the D-dimer, and that's a test. So if you see D-dimer, it says, hey, somebody had a clot, and it's being resolved by the body, or, it or they had microclots. So often for people who have long COVID, 
one of the signs they have is they don't see any clots anywhere on any other tests. You can't see them on MRIs. They're not showing up, but they have elevated D-dimer levels. That tells you that they had clots, maybe these microclots that these people are talking about here. Um, carrying on at the bottom, therefore, if a fibrinoloid microclots, <clears throat> therefore, excuse me, if fibrinoloid microclots are largely responsible for the symptoms of long COVID, their removal is to be seen as paramount for relieving these symptoms and allowing the body to repair itself, end quote. Now, this is interesting because if these clots are actually resistant to the normal de decay process, the normal chopping up by plasmin and coming down into, um, uh, you know, D-dimers and all the rest, if they're resistant to that process, it remains an open question how you would go about actually dissolving these clots or how you would encourage the body to go about doing that. And so, so that's an open question. And of course, this needs to be investigated with all due haste. Now, obviously, if we knew this stuff back in August of 2021, this alone would have been really powerful indication that maybe we would wanna do things to help prevent spike protein from being in people's bodies because the spike proteins themselves are what caused this cascade and microclotting disaster to show up. We have uh, additional pieces on this clot formation hypothesis, amyloidogenesis here in the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein by Nystrom and Hammerstrom here. Um, nice piece of work, long body. I don't have time today to get into all of this, but this was this, my eyebrows whoop, up again. <clears throat> in the Journal of American Chemical Society, this was from submitted April 13th, so May of 2022. They noted here that there are these sequences, these amino acid sequences. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six amino acids there. And that would be eight in this string right here, or nine and nine in that one. Uh, big long strings, like a lot of them in the spike protein itself that those amino acids are um, predicted by this WALTZ program to have amyloidogenic properties, meaning they, they trigger this amyloid protein folding process. And so that's a lot of them. And um, they're showing here that, wow, this is another part. This could help explain why we see both fibrin in the clots and we see these amyloid proteins in the clots, these long white fibrous clots. So this is actually pretty interesting. So again, how did those sequences get into this particular spike? This spike protein has been a lot of surprises so far. Maybe just a couple too many for my taste if you catch my drift. Now, I was talking about, you know, maybe, maybe this wasn't the best idea. Maybe, you know, this is why sometimes it takes 10 years to develop these things because uh, you learn some stuff. This was a huge surprise at the time it came out. I reported on this back in March of 2022, and it was about the myocarditis risk and noting it's 133x above background, but the big surprise was circled in yellow down there. It's very hard to see at this resolution, but very clear staining with these little light brown um, pieces down here that show detectable SARS-CoV-2 spike protein in vaccinated individuals at least 60 days post-vaccination. And as well, um, they're finding out here the mRNA itself. 60 days afterwards. So that, that's really odd because remember for a long time, we were told, oh, you know, the stuff, it, all, it stays in the deltoid. It's only there for, <clears throat> you know, hours, maybe a couple of days. Um, and then the spike protein is, is produced, but it goes away quickly. And this study clearly showed neither of those things, <clears throat> excuse me, were actually true. So again, maybe that wasn't the best idea. Don't know.
Conclusions. So here's the captured territory. At least we can get this. We can share this in common. First, the clots we're, that are seen that we saw in that movie, right? They are without a doubt. They are pre-mortem. They're antemortem. No, no question at all. Absolutely. <clears throat> that's, that's just how it is. Also, <clears throat> excuse me, just having some frog in my throat today. <clears throat> also, the clots are formed by, by some other process than the laminar flow, the typical accumulation. We see those lines of zon, right? Not that. We're not seeing blood cells plus fibrin and platelets plus blood cells. We're not seeing that. They seem to just be fibrin and amyloid. I mean, it's just a, they're very unusual. I'm not aware of these anywhere else in the literature prior to starting in 2021. So I'm not aware of these things showing up anywhere else. So that alone ought to be captured territory. We can go, wow, these things are unusual. They're showing up all enough all over the place that we don't just have one embalmer noticing this, but enough that they have to say, you know, they, they aren't what you, they have to be fact-checked and disproven. But we can't disprove people's experiences, right? They see these things. They haven't seen them before. Biochemically, they're kind of weird. Structurally, they look a little odd. We think we have some data now that's beginning to show how they come together. But again, this is being looked at by people. If you noticed, um, Esther Pretorius, South African. Nurstrom, they're from not the U.S. So the U.S. itself is not really interested in looking into these. Or if they are, I'm not totally clear where that research is right now or why it's taking so long. But um, for sure... We need to study these things. Absolutely, they need a lot more study. And by the way, we now know that the spike protein itself, all by its lonesome, is known to contribute to misfolded proteins that consist of fibrin and amyloid. I didn't go into all the data, but those papers showed that. Beautiful micrographs, lots of you know controls, well studied. Hey, it's a thing. So because it's a thing, we should know something about it besides saying it's not a thing because experts said so. Not an answer anymore. I think we have to conclude that this is what we know for sure. Now, <clears throat> what do we not know? Got some open questions. First, we don't know how long post-infection this might last, right? So the thing about natural infection typically is that when you get it and because you're exposed to the totality of the virus, the N proteins, the E proteins, and the S proteins, your body mounts a, a full complement antibody and immunological response to that and you clear the whole thing out. But maybe not. So we don't really know. So how long is, is this? Are people at risk for a month post-COVID? Uh, three months? What about asymptomatic people? What about people who got slammed really hard? We don't know, right? But we, there's just some very open questions about this that are slowly getting resolved. And next we might ask, well, to what extent are the vaccine-induced spike proteins involved? Are they? Are they involved at all? Are they, do they do this? Do they do less of it? Do they do more of it? Do they do none of it? We don't know. Right. But this would be a great question to ask. This is an open question that still exists out there. And then my last open question is. Why did all the pharma companies focus on full length spike protein rather than just an, an immunogenic fragment? Why, why the whole thing? Why not just take little pieces of it and tell the body and train the body to look for these fragments that would give the same response as if they had the whole thing? in terms of its actual protective ability, why, I don't, I'm just confused about that. I, I would love to ask somebody what the rationale was, because I haven't got a good answer for this one yet, but why they all went on the whole jabang, right? Doesn't make sense. Um, it's kind of odd. So at any rate, here's a final conclusion. Uh, the failure to study these clots with all due rigor, it's actually inexcusable. It's inexplicable. Assuming public health is the goal or was the goal.
I don't know. I mean, it's just I, I can't explain why we're spending a hundred times the effort trying to disprove or fact check or slam dunk or censor or minimize or explain away or rationalize or deflect instead of just studying these things. Like there's a there's a mystery here and we should be working to unravel it. Of course, that is the scientific process, something I'm very passionate about. I love seeing where the data is going to go. That's what I do over at Peak Prosperity for my subscribers all the time. I save them a ton of time because, hey, I do the legwork for them. And B, I do my level best to go wherever the data finally takes me, not where I want it to take me. So believe it or not, large differentiator in this day and age. And so when we go over to uh, Peak Prosperity, we're going to be talking about there's some crazy stuff going on. This is not a religious conversation, but I do need to talk about an over-dependence and reliance on technology that is now leading to a lot of very awkward things as well. We'll be talking about Twittergate, that big thing that came out recently over there on Twitter, if you didn't see that. But that's what we'll be talking about. These are very, very important issues, and so that's what we'll be talking about over there. In the meantime, these clots are real. They form pre-mortem. And they're made out of things that are a little bit odd. And so we're pretty sure it has something to do with the spike protein. That's all captured territory right now. Now we have to go further and unravel the rest. Thank you for listening. I hope you found that helpful. If you did, please subscribe. If you need to resubscribe, resubscribe or re-re-resubscribe because for whatever reason, social giant, media giants like to unsubscribe people from my channels. Don't know why. Um, and second of all, if you like this, like it, hit the like button. That helps this get out to more people. I'd love for more people to get this kind of information in their hands. So if you agree, subscribe, hit like, share. Otherwise, see you over at peakprosperity.com where we carry on this conversation. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you next week. Bye-bye.